Thank you, Paul. I hate to tell the people up in the balcony, but it's about 30 degrees hotter up there than it is down here. Should have a mass exodus to come down here. There's other seats down here. It is cooler down here than it is up there. Lewis wants to have a reminder that we be praying for good weather in Nashville for his crew as they advertise the Ron Closet meetings in Nashville that will be taking place. They want good weather. Of course, you know the weather going up the East Coast is not good. I don't know how much of that's going to spill over into Nashville. You never know. So we do need to pray uh, that that will take place. They're traveling mercies as well, too. Um, After the church service today, if there's anyone here who uh, has some sickness and would like to... uh, have an anointing. Uh, we're having an anointing service in my in my office after the church service today. Feel free to be able to meet me right up here in the front, and then we'll go back in there. So if any elders are here, uh, meet me back in my office for the anointing service itself. I feel the need for the Lord to touch my lips this morning. Can we just bow our heads in prayer? I know we've already prayed for the hot coal of heaven to touch my lips this morning and I'm grateful for that but Lord it's got to be you speaking through me this is your message we want to be ready when Jesus comes we know that's going to be soon from everything that's happening around us so quickly it's no time to put anything off we need to commit ourselves today right now I commit myself to do your will for we ask it in Jesus name amen Recognize that picture? My, as my kids were growing up, they often, like a lot of little kids, they always want to know why does something happen. By the way, that young redheaded is the big guy sitting over there. So you try to explain to them why. And then after you finish with your explanation, you know what they ask again? I don't need the sign to hold it up. Why? And it's a never-ending event of saying, why, why? And so finally I put a stop to it by saying, why do you ask why? And they look at you kind of funny. But those little inquiries as to why are very important. thing of it is, is sometimes after we're baptized, We may not ask the question why, but after we go through our baptism, we kind of change our perspective. And as a child of God, we ask another question, but sometimes this question that we ask is, how? Because we learn what God is capable of doing, but we want to know, how will he do it? How will this ever take place? How do I know that it will happen in my lifetime? How can Jesus save a wretch like me? How can I travel to heaven without some type of a life support system? Even when I hear the words of Jesus, I have to ask the question, how? For example, Matthew 24, verse 14 
He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. How are we ever going to share the gospel to the entire world? If you stop to think about it, it boggles your mind. There's not enough hot air blimps to fly around in all the countries to share. The reason why it really baffles me is because they say that in this world today, approximately 7 billion people have never heard of Jesus Christ or have ever received a Bible. Now, if you take the world statistics that we have right now, as far as the number of Adventists that are on the books, and we all know that there isn't, well, a lot of Adventists do not attend a lot of the services, but if we was to take the total statistics, that would mean that there would be one Adventist that needs to share the gospel with every 400 people. How? Then you stop and look, there are a lot of Muslim countries that will not allow us to openly share the gospel in their country. Another place where it's hard to share the gospel is in China. There's about 1.3 billion people that Jesus desires to save and to have with them in heaven. And if it was just up to the Chinese Adventist church alone, because a lot of times they will not allow those from outside of China to come in, but even that is hard for the Chinese Adventists to do anything. But if you take the number of Adventists that we know about in China with and divide it into 1.3 billion people, that would be one Adventist for every 3,250 people. How? Are they going to be able to do that? And then you add to the fact that the world population is increasing rapidly every day. It seems literally impossible for us to share the gospel to the entire world. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How? I wonder if the disciples asked Jesus, how are we going to do that? And if you stop and look at what the disciples have back in those days and what we have today, it's a little easier for us today probably than those people back then because about one-third of the world population claims some type of tie to Christianity. But in Jesus' day, it was zilch. Spell that, Gary. I'll wait for him. You see, back in Jesus' day, people worshipped many gods. Christianity was the single exception. Add to the fact that Christians were viewed as a branch of Judaism and the Jews back in those days were considered the enemy of pagan worshipers, their presence was not very favorable. And yet, the Apostle Paul in 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23 says, Where's the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this word? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. You see, when Jesus came to this world, he was actually revealing God to this world. So there's the wisdom of the God. But when he came, they didn't recognize him. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach, here's what they preach, Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. You see, when God sent Jesus down to reveal the Father, they rejected his message. God himself came down to be able to, to share with them how and what it is they need to do to be able to be saved. They rejected his message. They crucified Jesus. So now the message has to go out through the disciples. And, it, and the message that they're preaching is Jesus crucified. And to them, it, it, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. Why did the Greeks think it was foolishness? Well, the emphasis in pagan worship was to worship gods that displayed great power. The more powerful the, your God, the better He is. But when the Christians went out and began to proclaim Jesus, And they revealed a message that says, here is the creator of the universe with great power that created everything. And then in the same breath to be able to say, it is the same one who created with this power was also the one who died on the cross. That seemed too far-fetched for them to believe. You've got a powerful God that dies without struggle, that dies without even fighting for what he believes, you call that a powerful God? That's foolishness. And yet, 30 years after Pentecost, Paul makes a huge declaration. Colossians 1 verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Do you notice what Paul said? Somehow, some way, with this foolish message, it came across, and Paul says, we preached it to every creature. And they didn't have any satellites or communication, internet or television or cell phones or hot air blimps. They didn't have any of those things. So my question is, how did they do it? If it's considered to be foolishness, if it's considered to be a stumbling block, how did it become so successful? 
I want to show you a link this morning. Look for the reoccurring theme. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Romans 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. 1 John 3, verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, and love one another. What's the reoccurring theme? Love. Could that possibly be how it was shared? A message that was foolishness and a stumbling block? Could it possibly be that the emphasis of love and the demonstration of love gave it great power? A pag- they found a pagan inscription written a century after the Apostle John's death. That was the last apostle to die. So this was a hundred years after John's death. Look what it said. Look how they, referring to the Christians, loved one another and how they are ready to die for each other. Notice what a pagan says that impressed him. They loved one another and was willing to die for each other. Isn't that the fulfillment of what Jesus says in John 15, verse 3? Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. We often link that to Jesus, and it is true. But if Jesus is living through us, isn't that link, that fulfillment supposed to be within our life? Was that link within the lives of the apostles and all the disciples and all the followers who called themselves Christians was so great that when they saw this love that Jesus demonstrated, they saw the same love, they had to write it down and say, boy, doesn't these people, isn't it amazing they love each other and they're willing to die Ellen White expands this idea in Acts of the Apostles, page 22. After the descent of the Holy Spirit, that's at Pentecost, the disciples were so filled with love. They were so filled with love for Him and for those for whom He died. Who did Jesus die for? Not only us, everyone. The entire world. Don't you know that Jesus loves the entire world? The Muslims? The Jews? It's not just us. So the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. They were filled with love for Him and for those whom He died. 
that hearts were melted by the words they spoke. That's what the other people heard. Their hearts melted. And the prayers they offered, they spoke in the power of the Spirit and under the influence of that power, thousands were converted. Is love the first thing that comes to mind when people think of Seventh-day Adventists? We better look very seriously at that question. If it is the power, if it's the thing that influenced even pagans back in the days of Jesus when the disciples received Pentecost, if they was revealed to them the great love of Christ and then realize that the love, that same love, is for all the people of the world, don't you think that before Jesus comes, that same concept is needed in His church? Let me show you the reality of what's taking place. Review and Herald, March the 22nd, 1887. Worldly, worldlings look on and jeeringly exclaim, Behold how these Christians hate one another. She continues on, If this is religion, we do not want it. And they look upon themselves and their irreligious Characters with great satisfaction. Thus they are confirmed in their impenitence and Satan exalts at his success. Look how Seventh-day Adventists hate one another. You might as well put it in that way. And because of that, I'm deciding to stay in my pagan ways, in my own way of worshiping, and I'm proud of it. I'm glad I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. That's not the message that God wants to have come across. Love has to be in our hearts before we can experience the true outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So where does it start? Joel, chapter 2, verse 23. I want you to look at this very carefully. You can look at it in your Bible and you can see that it's probably translated close to this. But look at it. Joel 2, verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, that's God's people, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the former rain, the early rain, yours might say early rain, keep that in mind, faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. He's talking about in the, in the context of it's going to come again. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So if we're looking for the latter rain, this former rain has to come with it, whatever that is. All right? So this is a familiar text we often use when we're talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I, what I want you to see is what the literal translation is. Tyndale, you ever heard of Tyndale? Tyndale meticulously, really before the Reformation, meticulously began to, to interpret, to write down the Scriptures because at the time, 
people, the common person, did not have access to the Scriptures. They had no idea what the Holy Scriptures said. So Tyndale knew that he had to get it in their language, but to get it in their language, he wanted to make sure that it was literal. This is what the Hebrew is saying. Okay, I want you to look at the same passage in Joel 2, verse 23, but the, or this is Wycliffe, not Tyndale. I want you to look at what Wycliffe's translation was clear back in the 1300s, the late 1300s. Now, here it is in Joel. Here's what Wycliffe says. And people of Zion, rejoice and be ye happy in the Lord your God, for he gave you a teacher. Keep that in mind. Teacher of righteousness, for he gave you the right amount of rain, and he shall make the morning or the early rain and the evening or the late rain come down to you like before. Now look at the difference in our New King James. Come on. New King James, it says, the word, we translated it former or early rain. Wycliffe literally translates it as teacher. The best translation is teacher. So why do they use the early rain? Take a look. First of all, the same exact Hebrew word is used in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 13. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. So it's someone who is giving instructions. When the Holy Spirit came to the disciples back in those days, did they know everything? They didn't know everything. They still had things confused in their mind, even about Jesus, couldn't even figure out why he was crucified. They were just as confused as anyone else. But all of a sudden, something, the Holy Spirit began to teach them what all the Scriptures have been saying all along and in the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. So the early rain, which always comes first, is when the Holy Spirit teaches us and the context reveals what he's going to teach us. So Wycliffe is looking not just at that one verse, but he's also looking at other verses in the Old Testament as to what the, how this word is used and what it ties with. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 8. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness Spring up together, I, the Lord, have created it. So what righteousness are we looking at? It's the righteousness of God, not of human beings. It's because He's the one that has created it. So He's going to rain down upon us, teach us righteousness, God's righteousness, which, by the way, is Love. Hosea chapter 10 verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes 
and rains righteousness on you till he comes and teaches you righteousness. Christ's righteousness. You see, the righteousness of Christ really is not only the love of God, which Jesus often revealed his love for the Father, but it's also the love for others. He, the Holy Spirit came and taught the disciples that Jesus obeyed God perfectly. That's his righteousness. And that by his death on the cross, it was a revelation that he loved mankind supremely enough to even die so that they might have life. That instilled in the hearts of these men and women the love of God, the amount of love that He has, that He was willing to go at any lengths to be able to save us. That's His love. But then, that love is also extended out to every man, woman, and child throughout the entire world. Jesus loved that man and that woman so much that he was willing to die for them even if they never accept his gift. But when they began to look at the world, they began to see it not as an impossible task, but as a task of revealing the love. If Jesus loves that man over there, I love him too. So when... Pentecost took place when the outpouring came upon those individuals. Their power that they went out into the world was power of love. And love for God and the love for other people. And that's what changed the entire world. Because the people were responding to that love. It is our obedience and love. It has to tie together. And they're going to see that love if we're willing to demonstrate it. And because of that, they will want to obey a God that loves them that much. Which is the same force that we have to have because I must be willing to obey a God that loves me that much. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord who teaches us through the Holy Spirit. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, the teacher. Like the latter and the former rain. That's the teacher of his righteousness and his love. And it's going to come to this earth. That's a prophecy. It's going to happen to God's people. But I must be willing to let the Holy Spirit teach me how to love the unlovable. Because Jesus did. It doesn't come naturally. The natural thing for us is to be repulsed and to run away from the unlovable. But not for Jesus. If we study the life of Jesus he automatically came to those that everyone else rejected. Am I willing 
to allow the Holy Spirit to teach me that type of love? Do I see the untouchable as the one that Jesus loves so much that he's going to send me to be able to reach out with this power, this powerful message of love, to reach out and to touch those individuals? They might reject. They might slap my hand. But they're not slapping us. They're slapping Jesus. Am I willing to love that much? To be taught how to love? Because really, to be honest with you, that is the greatest demonstration of who Jesus really is. Is that He reaches out and He touches and He loves me. It's just the wonder of it all, isn't it? Hymn number 75.